Today, why money matters and why it matters when it doesn't. Coffee with Creamer, where you get to sit down with our host, Dr. Barry Creamer, for a conversation about faith, life, and culture. We'll look at old ideas through a new lens, turn those culture wars on their head, and paint a picture of the way things could be. If you like your thinking deep and your coffee hot, pull up a chair. You're in the right place. One of the ideas behind today's conversation, which is not a financial advisor's discussion, I'm the last person in the world who can give financial advice to anyone. This is not financial advice. It's advice uh, or, I don't know, teaching about finances and money that has to do with our relationships with each other in general, in the community and society and our economy and so on. But more importantly, uh, when I say our, I mean for those of us who are living for something beyond this world, and particularly for those who are followers of Christ, for those who are believers. And, you know, there's a first premise that goes with this that always undergirds my thinking about these issues, and it's a passage at the end of one of Peter's letters, at for his first letter, Uh, where he's giving advice to those who are going to lead out in Christianity, lead out in the congregations, shepherds uh, or ministers or whatever word you put on it. Uh, And he says, give a, to them, he gives this advice and part, and so I'm going to read it to you from the Net Bible, give a shepherd's care to God's flock among you. And so this is advice to how to do that. Give a shepherd's care to God's flock among you, exercising oversight not merely as a duty, but willingly. That's one side of this equation for how we're supposed to do it if we're providing leadership in a congregation. Exercising oversight, not merely as a duty, but willingly under God's direction, not for shameful profit, but eagerly. And the two sides of that, that I'm, where I'm saying that he sort of does this in two different ways, you know, one side is to say, don't begrudge it. Don't, don't do it reluctantly. Well, you know, somebody's got to do it, so I guess I better do the task. But instead, engage in it willingly, giving your heart to it. So you actually care about the people and the, and, the, and the leadership that you're providing for them so that they can be obedient to God. That's fine. That's just on the sort of emotional side of it. You know, what, how are you supposed to approach this task and, and I know if you're saying, well, I'm not a pastor, why does that apply to me? All of it applies to everybody. It's not just about pastors, as we'll talk about as we get further into the discussion. But uh, particularly for those who provide church leadership, this would matter. But then the opposite side of it is to say, and therefore, you don't do it for shameful profit. That is, on the side of what gives you the will to do it, the willingness isn't built off of the benefit that you get from it. And he actually uses money to illustrate that, but it isn't just about money. But but the, the money part of it's important, as we'll see in just a moment. But it's, you know, why is that will there? Oh, I'm so happy to have this job because I make a bunch of money. 
that is still doing it not just as a duty, but it's doing your duty because you get something that compensates you for it and makes it worth doing. This is the opposite kind of assignment to that. This is not something we go into reluctantly anyway. I can't believe God's given me this purpose is how we should approach it, not as a duty. And then when we're coming into it, it would make sense that we would say, you wouldn't even have to pay me to do this. That's the idea. That the pay is secondary, that whatever gain there comes from it isn't part of the motivation for doing it. It's completely segregated from selfishness, from self-gain, when we're doing ministry the way we're supposed to be doing it. Now, again, I'm not just saying this for those who feel called to ministry or church vocational ministry, which is a, a, a narrower category of ministry. But instead, we're supposed to do it eagerly. But that's underlying my thoughts about this is that anytime somebody says, you know, I'm in service to God, I'm doing something in obedience to God, and at the same time, they're profiteering off of it, something's gone wrong. They're, they're missing, something's missing in that picture. And so I, I, I kind of want to come at it from that perspective. And that's just a, that's a, that, that's like the uh, background, cosmic background uh, radiation to me. That's the thing that's always everywhere in the universe and you never get away from. That idea related to money is one of the foundational things in my life because I've been in ministry my entire life or since I was 16 years old. So that's underlying this. What provokes it today for the conversation, as I'm recording it, that is, is uh, recently reading some things in Plato because I'm teaching a course at Criswell College. I serve as the president at Criswell College, but also uh, am a uh, professor here. Uh, and so one of the classes I'm teaching this semester is political theory. And it's a, it's a poli-sci class, but it's also a philosophy class. Obviously, I'm a philosopher. I'm not a political scientist straight up. But because it's a philosophy class, I, I get to overlap into the world of political science. And in this case, de dealing with political theory, well, you know, one of the issues is why you have a political body, why you have a state, why you have a society where people live together and so on. And so in reading Plato's Republic, uh, I am giving our students one of the primary sources on uh, understanding why societies come together and then what the basic structures underlying that society are and so on. And so I'm, I'm, I'm not going to spend the whole time on Plato, but part of what he says provokes some of this conversation. So the, the other side of this is, is sort of a caveat that I want to give about the relationship that in some ways inherently exists between, uh, in, in our minds it exists, between people and their economic value. In some ways, that's automatically there. It's always there because the way societies form and the way we've understood them historically and the way we even define our role within a society has a lot to do with what contribution we're making to that society, and that's largely economic when we're talking about it with each other. And so a part of this equation has to do, a part of the conversation today just has to do with sort of a warning that I want to give, and it, but it takes more than one step to give this warning. A warning I, I want to give to us, remind us about, uh, uh, when we're relating people to their economic value. So obviously there's a, a, a problem with that. Uh, at, at the beginning of it, on the face of it, there's a problem with that. 
there's a problem with any utilitarian approach to other people. And by utilitarian approach, I simply mean where we use people. There's always a problem with simply using people for what you want to get from them. And assigning people their worth based on their economic value is certainly saying, how useful is this person to me? What am I willing to give them in money for what they can give to me? Uh, and I'll, uh, well, I'll tell it now. It reminds me of a conversation I had with one of my kids. I won't specify which one right now, but they're all adults now. It's, it's decades ago when this happened, two decades ago when this happened, uh, when I was going to uh, resign at the church where I had served as a pastor for 17 years then take a new position at Criswell College. And I was telling the kids one at a time. My wife and I were telling them, and uh, we would bring them in and just have a little conversation with them and so on. And I told one, and they were like, yeah, well, that's, that's cool. But they were already out of high school. They were gone. And then another one who was leaving high school at the time, and it's like, oh, yeah, that's cool. I, that's interesting. I'm not surprised, blah, blah, blah. And then we got to one, and, uh, <laughs> and uh, well, I mean, I'm down to just two possible now if I give a pronoun, so her. Uh, anyway, her response, so she heard the whole thing. She listened to the whole thing very patiently, nodding, you know, taking it in, soaking in the information. I said, well, this is, you know, so I've got this invitation to go do that. And it means I would, uh, you know, not be pastoring this church anymore, you know, but then I would be uh, teaching over there and I'd be preaching and, you know, still doing the same blah, blah, blah. Went through the whole thing, gentle nods, acquiescence, and so on. And then when I was finished talking, she looked very sincerely at me and sort of lowered her head and said, so what does this mean to me? (laughs) It was was illuminating. It was a perfect question and the right question for her to ask as a teenager. You know, what's going to happen to me because of this? Does it mean we're moving? Does it, what does it mean to my income? I mean, your income, which feeds me, you know, all those questions. So that's often how we treat other people. You know, if I have this relationship, what what is this going to mean for me? What benefit is it going to bring to me? What is it, you know, what's it doing for my career? What's it, and so on. And there's a huge problem with treating other people like that. Like they are only important for what they bring to you. This is what Kant is talking about. This is the, the, one, the thing that I love most about Kant's ethic, that we live, we, we have to regard other people as being of equal worth, value, and being just as much an end as we are ourselves. And so we uh, learn to think of ourselves living in a kingdom of ends, is how it's referred to uh, now. And so, meaning that there there is a society that's formed not of people who can use each other and are, are constantly against each other, but of people who recognize, this is what society ought to be, people who recognize that everyone else has equal footing in this society with me. And that it's not just about what I can get from them. It's about the ends they have in mind as well. So there's always a problem with turning someone else into something you can utilize instead of recognizing that they themselves have their own end, that they are an individual with their own freedoms and rights and so on. So, so that, you know, on the premise, I mean, on the, on the face of it, we have to keep that in mind. <laughs> so what happens is, uh, I think most of us recognize that or want to recognize that. It's the basis of the golden rule. But, but when we've recognized it in, in a free society, then we assume automatically 
that there's something catastrophically wrong with a society that doesn't protect freedoms. So, you know, for most of my life, we divided the world into the free world and then that other world behind the Iron Curtain. Uh, And the Iron Curtain, I'm referring obviously back to a different period of time, but to that communist bloc that was associated with the Soviet Union and so on. And I'm feigning disgust at the same time that I had disgust for the lack of freedoms that we perceived existing in that part of the world. And I'm, and I'm not saying we perceived it incorrectly. There, there was a, a huge violation of the rights of individuals because in those societies, there was a collectivist value, not even using the word communitarian. There was a legitimately collectivist set of values, meaning it's not about the individual, it's about the society. And the individual has value because of what they contribute to the society. And that's the only value they have. And to a free society, an individualistic society, a rights-based society like ours, that is one of the most glaring shortcomings of collectivist societies. And so one of the, you know, one of the things that you know, brought this to the fore for me was rereading Plato uh, just recently, and he describes how, and, and it's just given us such common sense in, in their collectivist world, in their way of thinking about the world, it made sense to them to say this. Unfortunately, we still think this way. We just don't say it outright. And so he gives a description of a carpenter who falls ill and asks for a physician. Uh, And I'll read to you from the Republic in this uh, sort of uh, public domain translation that's out there. The physician, so the the carpenter asks the physician for a rough and ready cure and emetic or a purge or a cautery or the knife. These are the remedies. And, And if someone prescribes for him a course of dietetics, you know, eat these foods, solve the problem this way, and tells him that he must sway, swathe and swaddle his head and all these sorts of things, then he replies at once that he has no time to be ill. He sees no good in a life which is spent in nursing his disease to the neglect of his customary employment and therefore putting goodbye to this sort of physician, the kind of physician who would have given him a long-term care plan. Hey, take this medicine, eat these foods, take care of your wounds, and uh, over time you'll recover. He says, no, a carpenter would say, that's ridiculous. i got to get back to work. Get out of here. I'm not going to do your long-term care plan. It gets much worse than this. Hang on there. And therefore, bidding goodbye to this sort of physician, he resumes his ordinary habits and either gets well and lives and does his business, or if his constitution fails, he dies and has no more trouble. Yes, he said, now this is the person who's responding to Plato's description. Yes, he said, the man in this condition of life ought to use the art of medicine thus far only. Do you understand that sentence? Let me, let me continue to read then. Has he not, I said, an occupation? And what profit would there be in his life if he were deprived of his occupation? You see that? Uh, what profit would there be if he were deprived of his occupation? What's the point of keeping somebody alive, even restoring their health, if they can't work in the meantime? And therefore, and so this comes later, several paragraphs later, he says, and therefore, our politic Asclepius, Asclepius, of course, is the the medicine, you know, the, the son of Apollo, who's sort of the father of medicine. Therefore, our politic Asclepius may be uh, supposed to have exhibited the power of his art only to persons who, being generally of healthy constitution and habits of life, had a definite ailment. Such as these he cured by purges and operations and bade them live as usual, herein consulting the interests of the state. But bodies which disease had penetrated through and through, he would not have attempted to cure by gradual processes of evacuation and infusion. He did not want to lengthen out good-for-nothing lives. 
or to have weak fathers begetting weaker sons. If a man was not able to live in an ordinary way, he had no business to cure him. For such a cure would have been of no use either to himself or to the state. And let's just go on beyond that and say there's a story in Pindar, apparently. Plato quotes it from Pindar or refers to it from Pindar. He paraphrases it. Uh, where uh, where Asclepius actually takes a bribe uh, to for, from a rich man who is sick and can't work uh, but just wants to feel better and have some health. And he's got enough money, he doesn't need to work. And Asclepius accepts the bribe. And Plato's response to that is to say, well, clearly this story is false because a, a god doesn't lie and doesn't cheat and doesn't do things that are wrong. And he was wicked for treating an old, wealthy man who just wanted to be well, but didn't want, you know, but wasn't going to contribute anything to the society anymore. That he, the assumption in Plato's day is that he would write those words and that his readers would say, well, yeah, I mean, if you can't work, what's the point of living? Uh, if, you didn't, if you can't contribute carpentry or something to your society, what are you even doing staying alive? That's their assumption. And I hope that creeps everyone out as much as it creeps me out. It, it ought to. The automatic response of a free society to that is to say, people aren't just a means for us to get stuff from them. So there's so on that side, we recognize what's wrong. That's one of the main reasons in my encounters with people who talk about communism, not the nonsense people gripe about Marxism and stuff now where there's this ideological barrier to reading anything about, you know, all this and that. And it's not that. But the real objections to communism, when we when we viewed communism as the opposite side of the world while I was growing up and stuff, the real objections people had to that were about this, the assumption that a person's value was only in their economic value to that society. And so their freedom didn't matter at all. Their interests, their entertainment, their goodwill, none of that mattered. All that mattered was what are they going to do for the society? What do they contribute? From everyone according to his ability was all that mattered. And we just find that noxious. That's not acceptable. So I've got that statement made. But then on the other side of that statement, change perspective completely for just a moment. And I'll, I'll do this more thoroughly in a, in a minute. But from the subject's side, there is a truth that we do want to be of use. Now, again, I'm saying from, from your side as an individual. I'm not saying from the public side, we should look at an individual and say, oh, what do they even do for us? But then from the other side, if, like, if people treated me that way, I would feel terrible about it, right? However, on my side, when I look inside myself, I do say to myself, and I don't mean this like I, I've achieved a healthy psychology. I mean this is being human. We want to be of use. We, we want to do something that's valuable. You know how it goes when people start getting older and the people who love them start wanting to take care of them. So, oh, you don't have to cook that. I'll take care of that. We'll send somebody to clean your house. We'll do all this. And what they, what they fail to recognize is that they're stripping that person of the worth that they believe they're bringing to those relationships by doing something and serving other people. And so we want to serve them so much that we forget that they want to serve us. And I'm saying that subjective side of it, where we're willing to say, hey, even if you can't do anything for us, we love you and we're going to take care of you, 
just take it easy. You've given 80, 90, whatever years of faithful service to us. Let us take care of you now. We should do that. That is the right thing to do. That's good. But on the other side, we can't be surprised that an 80 or an 85 or a 90 or 95-year-old person says, yeah, but I want to do something. I want to, don't keep me from cooking for Thanksgiving. I want to help. I want to do something for you. There's something good about the fact that we want to serve other people. And so this, this is where we get back to money for a minute. Because some people just don't think through this. You probably have, but in case you haven't, let me just remind you about this. There is a good thing, and I actually brought this up when we talked about the problem with other people. You know, uh, we, we did a whole episode on how other people are important and our interactions were, are important, and, and the fact that they put pressure on us is important to making us better people. And, and so this sort of fits that category. I mean, the good thing, thing about money, and actually this is a good thing about money when we don't like it. And, you know, most people don't like money when they don't have it. That's the, that's the, that's the point where people, or I hear people say this all the time. And I'm, again, I'm around a lot of college students, so it comes out from a lot of college students. But it also comes out from a lot of younger people and from people who've been frustrated that they didn't get to go the direction they wanted to go with their career or their life or whatever, and they still don't have a lot of money. And the the, the response is, I, I wish we didn't have to, to serve money. I wish, you know, wish this just wasn't the reason that I have to do the things that I do. And I understand it. Believe me, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not complaining that somebody has an emotion. You just have the emotions you have. It's fine. That's what I mean by when we don't like money, when people are saying things like that. But there's a good thing about money when we don't like it. And and the way that I can communicate the good thing about money when we don't like it is by changing the question. So the way we think of the question is, you know, about whether we should value others for what they do for us. That's obviously wrong. And what we're thinking sometimes is, well, it's wrong that I get pigeonholed into this thing that has to produce something that can give some money just so I can eat or so I can go have medicine or, you know, whatever it is I'm trying to get to, which is usually not the thing that people are trying to get to. It's usually something beyond that. I'm not saying those things are bad. I'm just saying it's usually more than that. But whatever it is, we, we recognize this. That, that, that's wrong. You know, if we're asking the question that way, should we value others for what they do for us? Of course not. But, but if we change the perspective of the question, then it makes more sense of the value money brings to the conversation, even when we don't like it. So let's change the question. Instead of it being about whether we should value others for what they do for us, which is obviously wrong, let's change it to this, being about whether what we do for others should have some value to them. That part makes sense of it, right? But I also changed the perspective. It's not about me, you know, valuing another person because of what they do for me and giving them money for it. It's about me acknowledging that sometimes I do need to say, is this worth anything to anybody? Or am I just doing this because I like to do it? In which case, there is a question to be asked about how well we're serving others. In other words, we're changing the question to one about whether others should value what we do for them. And maybe they, maybe they will, maybe they won't, but it's a legitimate question to be asking. It's a valuable, important question to be asking. Uh, I, and I've, I've put this in all kinds of contexts, and so I'll give some examples that make exceptions out of this. 
But the the non-exceptions are obvious. Um, I I was talking with a, a person yesterday who has a Ph.D., not a part of Criswell College. He's not associated with the college. But we were talking about education and things, and, and he was saying the shortage of uh, technicians, of people who have skills in, you know, whatever it is, plumbing or, uh, you know, being electricians or whatever, what, whatever the disciplines are. And I don't even know if those are the right ones. I'm going on what he said yesterday. But I do know there are there are cases where those are in short supply. And and in those cases, what you have is people who are saying, how can I get somebody to come fix my plumbing? What do I do? And they're willing to pull out all kinds of money to get somebody over there because there is a value to that act of service. And the person who does it doesn't have to be saying, I just love pipes. Oh, I'm so eager to get down there and work with some pipes. They might do it for no reason other than that they need the money. But they end up serving the person that needs their pipes fixed because they need the money. And the money works to get people to serve each other's interests, even when we're not necessarily paying attention to each other's interests as interests. You get what I'm saying. Okay, so I'll leave that there. So you get that there's a value to money. There is a good side to the pressure that money puts on us because it sort of squeezes us into a corner where we have to say, man, I, I guess I'm going to need to do something for a while that other people value, which means that it can squeeze us into a corner where we're thinking about others and what they want instead of just ourselves. And it's not. I'm not saying it's pleasant. I'm not saying I wish that I'm happy with that being the case. I'm not saying I want it to be the case. It just is the case. It just makes that happen. But there are exceptions, right? I mean, there there is a reality where we need sometimes people to be able to say, I don't care whether there's any money there or not. I don't care if I starve to death. I'm going to do the right thing here. And if you say, well, the right thing is serving other people, it's true, but, but, and I'll, I'll, I'll give a little tiny bit more detail on it in a moment, but sometimes the value that a thing has, even for another person, isn't recognized by that person. And so there's no way on earth they're going to pay for it. And I hate to use this example because I think dentists are incredibly gifted, talented, important people, and I value you. And I'm sorry for all the jokes people tell about you, including entire Seinfeld episodes. But here's the thing with, with, with a dentist. A bajillion people are not willing to give their money to a dentist, even though they really need to go to the dentist. They need what a dentist does. And they say to themselves, I need to go to the dentist. But I don't like going to the dentist. I don't want to go to the dentist. I don't want my teeth to hurt. And then they're going to make me pay money. No way, not going to do it. And they, they won't do it. So I'm saying in that, in that vein, sometimes people don't know what they need. And a person who has that might have done the right thing by going down the road they're going down, by studying what they studied and preparing to do what they did, and then still might not make any money from it. I'm not saying that's true about dentists. They seem to do okay. I'm happy for you. Again, I'm all on your side. I'm really glad for you. And if you're a pain-free one, send me an email. I'm happy to I would, would enjoy, well, I'll just leave it there. Okay, so on to, I, I lose my mind when I start thinking about Dennis. You can see where it is. Okay, so anyway, here are the exceptions I'm really talking about, though. Let me lead into them. Let me lead into, into it with a gentle one. 
uh, a philosopher like Descartes. He actually talks about this. Descartes, at the beginning of his meditations, describes or his discourse on method, one of the other, one or the other. He describes not having been able to do real philosophy until he no longer had to be worried about the daily constraints of buying food and paying for an apartment, you know, and all those things that make life happen from day to day. In those moments, he just had to get by from day to day, and that's how most of us live. And yet Descartes introduces ideas that transform the modern world. And I, I, so anyway, it's another discussion about whether the ideas transform the world, the culture around it, whatever. But the point is, incredibly important philosophical ideas that inform the world for the next 500 years. And yeah, I'm going beyond where he actually was. I mean, barely beyond where we are right now. We're almost 500 years from Descartes, from his death. So I, you know, that's unbelievably, but he couldn't do it when he had to make a living. There are exceptions to the idea that money should govern how we make decisions about what we're going to do in life. And a philosopher provides a context for that. That's, this, is, this is part of the reason that the ivory tower is the ivory tower. Uh, the ivory tower is duly separated from the morass of daily functioning in life. And I wish people understood higher ed that way. It's great that higher ed supplies workers for the workforce. It's great that we do rudimentary training, and I don't mean rudimentary like first grade, but that we do basic training for how to use your skills to function in the workforce today. I'm, ha- I'm so glad higher ed's able to perform uh, a helpful function in that way. But that's not the purpose for higher ed. The purpose for higher ed is the reason we understand the world is round instead of flat. The purpose for higher ed is people being able to give themselves to scientific or philosophical or other study in such a way that they can break out of the barriers that the rest of us don't even recognize exist. It's an incredibly important offering to give to a culture or society when people are able to do that. And so I'm just mortified when I hear political leaders, for instance, describing higher education in terms that make it nothing more than a business model. It's just losing the whole point of what's going on. Okay, I'll get off my high horse. I am the president of a college. I'm not, fortunately, in a public school, and I have tremendous support from my board. So I'm I'm so grateful for the leadership we have here at Criswell and the freedoms we have. But you can understand why also on the other side of that, societies would begrudge those people who live up in that ivory tower and they don't have to put bread on people's tables. They're just up there speculating about flying to Mars and so on. I understand why people would say that because there is a sense of uselessness in some of the things that are pursued. Why are they doing research on whether kangaroos can jump over this or that? You know, I'm sure there's some study on kangaroos jumping somewhere. Uh, so I get why people do that. So the, the, this is the idea. The fact, not, it, it's not just that Descartes had to wait. Obviously, he waited until he had patronage, by the way. He had a, a queen who invested in him, allowed him to be a tutor, and gave him freedom for studying at the end of his life. The fact that he couldn't focus, this is the point, the fact that he couldn't focus on the most serious philosophy that he wanted to do while he was making his work of economic interest to others. That's the point. And and the fact that others may not see the economic value in a calling doesn't mean it has no economic value. Descartes' contributions transform a lot of things, including science and medicine, but and math, by the way, which means engineering and so on. 
But, and also this though, it doesn't mean it. So I'm, I'm saying this to you, but the fact that people don't see the economic value doesn't mean there's not economic value ultimately. That, and so, and sometimes the ultimately is the key term there. Maybe not this decade, maybe not this century, but eventually it transforms the economy entirely, which is true. But also, it doesn't mean that it has no value other than economic. So sometimes the things that a person brings are not just about how much money it can generate. There is a different value to it. And so, so uh, another step, I'll give you another example, artists. And uh, we describe artists a lot of times as starving artists. And sometimes we mean by that bad artists, <laughs> but most of the time, what we mean by that is somebody so committed to their craft that they don't give time to the basic needs of life that, and that they're not known yet well enough to avoid the struggles that come with giving yourself that way to a craft like an art. And so, uh, I mean, I, the, the example I always think of in this case is Herman Melville because of, uh, of what happened with him when he, when he was first writing in the early 19th century. He was part of the American Renaissance, you know, mid-19th century. When he was first writing, he, he, had, he, he was so poor, I mean, before he started writing, that he, you know, got on a, got on a ship and started, uh, this is where he learned the stuff that he applied to his writing about the naval stuff that he wrote later about Moby Dick and things. But he got on a ship and sailed around for a while and eventually got off on an island in the South Pacific, I think. Ended up writing a book called Typee. Most, most of us wouldn't care about that work, but it had great success at the time. But, and, and he thought, oh, now I'm an author. I can start writing the things I want to write. You know, that he had written something that people valued, Typee. And, and another one, I've forgotten what it was called, some ooh something or another. Anyway, um, <laughs> in all of that, they didn't want the other stuff that he wrote, you know? So he wrote, even when he wrote Moby Dick, they didn't like it that much. It wasn't that great. It had some good critical reviews, but didn't make any money. And so he had serious financial struggles through most of his life. Uh, for, in fact, from then on, and he wasn't popular again for a, until, until his hundredth birthday in 1919. Uh, Moby Dick was put out again and sort of advertised and promoted as this 100th anniversary celebration of Herman Melville, American author, blah, blah, blah. And he became the great success that people know him as now. That's after his death. He struggled for the rest of his life. And yet we wouldn't say to him, hey, they don't want to buy stuff like Moby Dick. Just get back to sailing on your ship or to writing cheap novels uh, that entertain people. We want artists who are willing to give themselves to something beyond what might or might not have commercial success right away. We need that. That that's part of what makes society beautiful and valuable and important that they're that we're able to extrude creative thinkers like that. I love that. Really everyone in the nonprofit world is supposed to be an exception to this rule about money. That's why it's called the nonprofit world. There's a joke, you know, when people are talking in nonprofits, uh, whether it's in churches or schools or museums or anything else. And it says, yeah, you know, when we say we're nonprofit, we mean it. Uh, that's that, that joke is playing on the two senses of the meaning. Nonprofit doesn't mean it doesn't bring in money. Uh, some of the nonprofit hospitals bring in more money than entire states. Uh, it's not about whether there's money, you know, a, a gross profit or not. It's about whether you're doing it for that purpose, whether that's what motivates you, whether that's the driving factor. And so the, the point in the nonprofit world that I'm bringing up here for everybody who's in the nonprofit world 
is that there's something healthy about the ordeal that people face in fundraising, for instance. The economic pressure that nonprofits face, having to raise money all the time, having to get people to want to invest in it and so on, is probably a healthy thing. It's a healthy ordeal. By ordeal, I mean a trial by fire, you know. For separating hobbyists, ooh, I love doing this. This isn't what I do for money, but, man, I sure have a good time doing it. I mean, I love doing astrophotography, but I'm, but I'm not going to do it when I'm hungry. Uh, I'm going to, you know, I'm, I'm going to find a way to make some money and then I'll do astro, but, I, but, I, but, but there are people who would have a sense of calling to something like that. But in the nonprofit world, this idea of economic pressure of having to raise money is sort of a winnowing fork, uh, exposing the chaff or the pests that are in that world and separating them from the solid grain, the people who are really there because they care about that mission. In fact, one of the things people say to me because I'm president of a college is, yeah, I know you hate the fundraising. That's actually not true. I, I think when I started it, I was afraid I would hate fundraising, but it's completely wrong-headed. It's not true at all. Uh, I love sharing what the college does with people and then simply saying to them, if this is something the Lord wants you to participate in, if this is something you want to give to, here we are, and we would love to have your support. We would love for you to be a part of that. Who wouldn't want to do that if you believe in what you're doing? And in the nonprofit world, that's what I mean by saying, if you really care about your mission, then the economic pressure is nothing more than a motivation to get out there and work harder and make things happen better and explain it better and make it sharper and so on like that. And if you're not, if you're in it for the money, then fundraising does, it is a headache because sometimes people give and sometimes they don't. Then if you're in it for the money, it's really frustrating when they don't. But if you're not in it for the money, you're like, hey, whoever, whoever is a part of this, we're glad to have them as a part of it. And whoever doesn't want to be a part of it, it wouldn't make sense for them to give to it. That's fine. And finally, to the thing that matters today, ministry, ministry itself. And so, you know, ministers are not supposed to do things for money. This is what I was reading to you in 1 Peter 5. That's not our motivation. And, and I just mean ministry in, in broad, broadly, not even just church vocational, not even ministry vocational, but in, this, in the broad sense of I'm giving away my life and career to serve people. I'm giving it away in some way. So this is why, by the way, I would say it's true about public servants. Public servants are supposed to be this way too, the people who work in government. They're not supposed to be doing it for the money. The nature of that role is that we're supposed to be serving the interests of the society, not seeing what we can get from it. So anyway, back to ministry. John the Baptist is my favorite example of it. I could read lengthy expositions about it, but you know what happens with John, the son of Zechariah, as Luke puts it. I think we ought to call him that. John, the son of Zechariah. I know, I'm not going to change habits, centuries-old habits. But still, he was living in the wilderness. He's declared by Jesus to be this person who's not like those you see dressed in soft clothing, living in the king's courts and declaring things to the people who are in town. You're going out to see a prophet and somebody more than a prophet. That means somebody who's not wrapped up in the system that's built into the world that we're a part of if we're living for that kind of stuff. So prophets were these people who lived beside the economy. They lived outside the normal part of the world where that was your motivation. I think John Wycliffe is a great example of this. He's, a, you know, he's the guy that's associated with the first English translation of Scripture. He didn't do the whole thing himself, but he did most of it, and a lot of other people worked with him to finish it, or worked to finish it. 
Uh, and you know, he, I mean, he's he's a he's a great testimony to martyrdom, to to being a witness for Christ. But he, you know, when he was younger and he was in dire straits for money, he was offered by people he was aggravating. They wanted him to do his ministry elsewhere. He was offered a significant income at a parish where he could have just made it easy. I mean, most people would have said, absolutely, yes, beautiful, powerful career ahead of me. This is the path to go. And he gave up that income, staying in debt, serious debt, serious problems, so that he could be closer to Oxford for the rest of his studies and the work that he did in bringing us the English translation of the Bible. And, and, and by the way, lost out on other parishes after he graduated the same way, for the same reason, because of his values. And he struggled financially his entire life. And by the way, if you think, oh, well, it'll always come back to you, he died in huge debt. John Wycliffe, that's John Wycliffe. Wycliffe translate. you know Wycliffe, the name? This is not a man who went to his grave and said, oh, finally, I've, I've achieved my reward. My family gets a huge inheritance. No, they inherited debt from Wycliffe because he wasn't there for the money. And he refused to be there for the money. And he paid the price of what it means to be in ministry. And so, you know, it takes us back to 1 Peter 5 and the point that, you know, like, so, you know, so ministers don't do it for the money. And yet we got these ministers driving, you know, Ferraris and stuff. And I've heard, I've heard ministers say, I, I didn't take a vow of poverty. I'm not in that tradition. I don't follow the Catholic tradition. You know, there's not... The Catholic Church is not inventing the idea of poverty by having a vow of poverty. Ministers have a unique and definite role within societies, regardless of where the society is and regardless of which religion it's in. So, you know, on on one side, there is the obligation that people have to take care of the people who minister to them. That's important. You can look it up. Galatians 6, 6 talks about it. You know, to the one who receives instruction of the word must share all good things with those who teach it. That's, that's true. Philippians, I think Paul makes the point perfectly. You Philippians took care of me. You sent me these gifts. I really needed them. Thank you. But I'm not saying this because I seek a gift. Rather, I seek the credit that abounds to your account. And this is in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but also, I think, sincere from Paul personally. He doesn't, he, he's not, He's not looking for things for himself, and yet they did the right thing by taking care of him. So on that side, we know that. But on the minister side, on the other side, on the side of those who are giving themselves to serve others, it's not about seeking gain. So this is why I said public servants have to be that way too. The idea that you're a public servant, the idea that you go into government service, even as a political leader, means you have to be acting in the general welfare not for your private welfare, which means you become a servant to the society. So it doesn't matter what you get out of it, and you can't make your decisions based on what you get out of it. And for those of you who listen to this and have a role in government of any kind, influencing the political side of it, and I know some of you do, whether you're influencing the political side of it or if you're actually serving in a legislative role, you know, for heaven's sake, please come back to a point where you say, I will refuse to make any decision about government, ruling, the general welfare, any of those things based on what it is or isn't going to do for me or my family. If you can't say that, you shouldn't be in public service. Okay, off, off, the, uh, off of that soapbox. I'll get on a different one. It does apply not just to ministers who've given their lives to doing this, but to every servant of Christ who is a minister, 
to all believers. This is the point in 1 Timothy where he's telling ministers not to get caught up in greed, uh, to, to think that godliness is a means of gain, in a quote from verse 5 in 1 Timothy 6, but instead to realize that godliness with contentment is great gain. We didn't bring anything into the world. We can't take anything out of it. He's saying that to ministers, but then he goes on and says what Timothy should be saying to everyone in his church, even those who are rich. Don't be haughty. Don't set your hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Now, again, it's not saying you can't have money. It's not saying the money you have has to all go away. I'm not saying that. I'm not, I'm not even implying it. I am saying it cannot be our summum bonum. It cannot be our goal. So here's, here's the point I'm trying to make, and I'll conclude. Number one, that we be sufficiently circumspect to understand that money is an important part of indicating the value that we have for what, for, for what others do for us. Meaning, we can't be so stingy that when somebody does something worthwhile for us, we're not willing to reward them for it. This is why we should be generous with the people who are around us and grateful for the ways they bless us and benefit us. And we're wrong when we refuse to share with those who benefited us. And if you think that I'm exaggerating the importance of this, go read James 5. You read the beginning of James 5, and there's a pretty stout condemnation for people who just keep wages overnight for the people who harvested their field that day. Don't hang on to it overnight. Give it to them when they earn it, right then. And so I'm not, I'm not prescribing a different model of paychecks here. I'm just saying that's how important the issue is. We should recognize that money is an important part of how we can indicate to others the value of what they've done for us. That's good. This is a good thing. That we, the end that we may have to consider our, this is the other side of that. This is still on the good side of, of the money pressure. That we may have to consider our role and its value when we're facing financial constraints. Uh, consider. It doesn't mean abandon. It doesn't mean that the money becomes the only guide. But consider when there's financial constraint, why is it that, that I'm not contributing enough to get something back out of this? And there may be a good reason. There may be reasons that you have no control over. There are certainly those in an unjust society. That happens. I've talked about that in a lot of previous episodes. And we, I would love to give more detail to it today. We don't have time for it. But there are a lot of ways built into an unjust, I'm going to mention just this much of it. There are a lot of ways built into a, an unjust society that prevent money from flowing freely to the things that actually are most valuable. That's fine. That doesn't change the fact that some money can get there and that we ought to care about that money. I mean, you know, you think about how complex an economic system is, acts of creation and distribution and service and support and labor and management and investment and then research and marketing and all of that, and knowing that every person who contributed along the way to make it happen, you know, it's not, it's not realistic to think that, yeah, the money's going to flow freely to everybody proportionately with the value of what they brought to that world. It's like thinking that the offensive linemen are going to make as, money as, as much money as Dak Prescott. I mean, it's just not going to happen. And, and is that fair? Well, I mean, this year it's not a good year to ask the question, so we'll talk about it later. Okay, so one side of the conclusion is to say, let's be more circumspect about the value money does bring to the equation, and that it's important for us to care about how we're paying people and giving money and and using that money, and also what that money might be saying about the value that we're bringing to others if it's not coming in. So that, that's good. But the other side of this that, that I think is equally important is us remembering, 
And this is not so much about money as about being able to extract our own interest from our decisions. That's hard. Extract our own interest from our decisions. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours. That's what that means. Extract our own interest from our decisions when we're followers of Jesus. That is, that we occupy, and, and, and not by ourselves. I mean, let's be honest. That we occupy, along with public servants and artists and prophets and others, a distinctive place beside society, not just in it. We are in it also, but we are also sort of beside it. You know, as, as Christians, this is inherently true. We're citizens of two kingdoms. And people ought to be able to relate to us as somebody who's not completely trapped in the morass that defines the rest of the world. And so that's being able to extract our own interest from the decisions we make as followers of Jesus. And therefore, I'll close, that we become those who deny ourselves, take up our cross every day, and actually follow him. Thanks for joining us for Coffee with Creamer. Your cup of coffee may be finished, but we are not. (laughs) Come back next week for a refill as we sit down to examine a new set of ideas and cultural issues. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or visit our website at barrycreamer.com. Until next time, keep your mug hot and your mind sharp.